Welcome to Now on Netflix. We are your personal curators for what you need to be watching. This week, it is a very special history lesson, the most fun history lesson you've probably ever had. We're going into American history, British history, and if we have time, maybe even some ancient Roman history. I'm Jessica Shaw. You may know me from SiriusXM, and I am so thrilled to be joined by a present-day icon, Henry Goldblatt, editor of todoom.com. Hello, Henry. Hi, Jessica. I thought you were going to call me a relic of history, and I was not going to be offended. I would understand. 100% not. As I said, present-day icon. I mean, another just contemporary legend. Here you go. Ruthie Kinane, another editor at todoom.com. And we're going to talk about The Crown. We're going to talk about Rustin. We're going to talk about some new projects coming to Netflix. But let's start on The Crown because season six is out today, the first half of the final season. Um, And this first batch of episodes out today, the remaining six will be out on December 14th. Ruthie, tell us about, at least about these first episodes. Sure. So this first part is four episodes long, and it really, it picks up directly where we left off at the end of season five. So in that scene with Diana, we saw her packing her bag. She's going on holiday, as we say in the UK, to the south of France. Mohammed Al-Fayed has invited her and Prince William and Prince Harry to come and vacation on his yacht you know, as one does in Central Pay. So she's jetting off there. A week or so into her trip, Dodi, Mohammed's son, shows up to also spend some time there. And as we all know, that becomes a romance. And it really is the last six to seven weeks of uh, Diana's life in those four episodes. So normally on The Crown, you're seeing like a decade for the season. So this would have been five years or so. But in this season six, it's just the last six weeks of her life. So a very kind of concentrated view of that period. Henry, I was curious what it was like for you watching this. It's a different experience watching things that touch on history that we lived through, history that we witnessed. What was that like watching this most recent season for you? Jessica, it was really intense and different. And as you say, like watching the first couple of seasons of The Crown, I was not born in the 1940s or the 1950s, so I don't have reference there. But I was certainly a live functioning adult in the 90s, and especially when um, Princess Diana died. And oh my God, it brought back a lot of memories. The show takes creative license based on events that happened in real life. So of course, not everything is just as it occurred. But wow, it really was evocative. And even right down to the music, like there's some 90s needle drops there that were incredibly um, surprising and took me back and really added to the ambiance. I have to say the details on this show are, I mean, the wardrobe, the set, like in, in every room, like every detail, even on the yacht or in Mohammed Al-Fayed's personal office, it's just unreal. And one of the things that really almost took my breath away was watching some of the shots of Diana. There's one in particular of her that I remember seeing photos of, of the actual Diana, sitting on the edge of this long diving board, and she's in her one-piece bathing suit. You see that on the show. Elizabeth Debicki is playing Diana, and it's just, it is so striking. It kind of takes your breath away because it takes you right back to the first time you saw that photo. Yeah, absolutely. What the show does so well is it takes these recognizable moments and then uses them as kind of springboards to take you into what Peter Morgan imagines goes on between these characters 
obviously nobody knows the true details of what goes on with the royal family. But there's always those moments throughout the seasons where you're like, oh my gosh, yes, I remember that. Like, And this photo is kind of almost, if not as famous as the revenge dress photo, right? Like you, everyone remembers that dress. Everybody remembers this bathing suit and this beautiful Mediterranean sea and her legs dangling over the, the end of the diving board. Something really interesting that the costume designer for the series, Emmy Roberts, told us was that this season, like, the bathing suits really become Diana's evening gowns from previous seasons. Your breath should be taken away by those scenes and those outfits. And like she has a few. She has the leopard print one. She has, I think, a kind of bright green one. Those become, as she hangs out with the boys, her sons in the first few episodes, they're more family friendly, let's say. And then as the vacation progresses and it's just her and Dodie, they get a little sexier. So they are definitely notable and it's good that that stuck out in your mind. And also... The same brand that made them for Diana, I believe it's called Gotex, made a few for the show for Elizabeth Debicki. So it's a cool inside detail. I love that you don't know what Gotex is. That's because God bless you never needed like support bathing suit. Let's just put it that way because they do that really well. Henry, were there details that stood out to you like the bathing suits did with me of the season? Two things. One was just the majestic landscapes that this was shot against. The yacht itself, the ocean, it was just so incredibly, it's visually stunning in a different way than The Crown usually is. And the landscapes were incredible. But Ruthie, I want to touch on something that you said about imagined conversations, because one that stuck out to me was a conversation once Diana and Dodie are back in Paris. And it's sort of a precursor to when they get into the car and have that horrible accident. But it's sort of untangles their relationship and makes a guess as to what their relationship was like when they both perished. And it's an incredibly moving scene and obviously one that is created for the series because there was no documentation of a conversation they had privately. How did it strike you? Yeah, I fully agree. I think it's such a chaotic time. Like you keep going and seeing them, the cameras flashing, the paparazzi chasing them. And then they have this kind of very quiet moment in a hotel room where they just really are honest with each other for the first time. And also, like, again, just to say they were only together for six weeks. So this was a very accelerated romance because of the press speculation, because of their fame. Yeah, that moment felt very kind of normal or more real. But that's all credit to Peter Morgan's writing, because, again, as we said, it's imagined. But he writes these beautiful scenes that don't feel too overdone or corny in any way. They just really kind of resonate when you finish watching them. I did not know that much about Mohammed Al-Fayed. I mean, I knew sort of the, you know, the headlines, Owens Harrods, and obviously that he was Jody's father. And I found his storyline in this first batch of episodes, I found his storyline and his um, just this strong desire bordering on obsession with being accepted by the royals. I thought it was fascinating. He's also very sympathetic. I feel like, like you said in the press, a lot of it was kind of like he was showing off or he was pushy with Dodie. And I think like this show gives him a personality and a character that you can really like empathize with. Like you, I really knew his name from Harrods. Ruthie, it's so interesting that you say that because I felt in the previous season he wasn't sympathetic at all. And this season they really flesh out the character and you get to know him better. What was so interesting to me is sort of the racial overtones of what was going on and him wanting to be fully accepted into a predominantly white society and how he seemed to crave that and how difficult it was and how he put those put those feelings and those desires onto his son. 
Yeah, and on to his son in such a way that he was like, please marry Diana because what better acceptance could we get? And it's very heartbreaking to watch. It's heartbreaking and disturbing and upsetting as this is portrayed of how the royal family responds to him, both before Diana and Dodie's deaths and after. Ruthie, as someone from Scotland, I'm really curious, where were you and what were you doing when you found out the news that Diana had passed away? Well, we wouldn't have learned until the Sunday morning because it happened right at midnight. Um, I was in my parents' house. My mom had the TV on. And the way that we watch news now that we never used to, where it was like constant, the same stories, like all the information coming in in real time. Everyone being in shock, walking past people in the street and see it reflect in other people's faces. I believe we had dinner plans that night that were very promptly cancelled because it was just like a very horrible day. And that was in Scotland. Like even I can't imagine what London would have been like. We kind of see it in, in the series. It's really just fascinating to watch. Both you see in the series how people in London respond and, and throughout the UK respond. And then you also see, you know, in this version, how Imelda Staunton, who plays Queen Elizabeth in these final two seasons, uh, how she responds in the series. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And in the series, um, there is a lot of pressure for her to kind of respond and be this like mother to the nation. I think through the seasons of the show, we've seen the the queen grapple with that and how to show her emotions and where like the crossover in her role. Like, should she show emotions and be vulnerable with her people or is she like more ceremonial and she should take a back seat? So there's an interesting storyline with that of her like grappling with what to do and Prince Charles encouraging her to kind of speak and address the public. And especially because you think, you know, then Prince Charles, now King Charles, and you watch the way that he wants his mother, the you know, the sovereign, to, to act. And of course, now he's in that position. So, you know, though this is a scripted and, you know, obviously not a documentary on any level, but it is kind of fascinating to watch this with your knowledge of facts and then watch this fictionalized version. Even having read Prince Harry's book, Spare, there are certain things that are resonant when you watch this that just touch on and there there are things that are obviously scripted and adapted and embellished and then there are the facts that you know and it, it's a journey watching the series. For sure and I think especially in these first four episodes because you know that you're leading up to Diana's death there's really no escaping that like everyone's aware of that if you got to that point and didn't realize like I don't know where you've been your whole life but um right you're seeing these beautiful scenes they're on a yacht they're in the south of France everything's gorgeous but there is this feeling of impending doom just kind of hanging over it it feels like a thriller almost especially those moments when they are off the yacht and they're on shore and they're being hounded and chased through the city by swarms of paparazzi and because you know where it ends. It's almost like scary to watch in a strange way. And then the score of the show always kind of keeps me on edge. I don't know if it's intended that way, but it's a very sort of tense score. So you're constantly just like, oh gosh, what's happening? What's coming next? Yeah. I, I mean, am I the only one of the three of us who, as I was watching it, in my mind, there was a part of me that was like, maybe this will end differently. Maybe this will end differently. I don't want it to end the way I know it ends. Jessica, totally. And Ruthie, I love your point about it feeling like the same type of feelings that you have when you watch a horror movie because they're on this yacht and it's so beautiful and idyllic. And then they're back in Paris and everything's feeling a little claustrophobic. And you're like, is it going to happen now? Or wait, not now, maybe in five minutes. It's really tense. And of course, you know the eventual conclusion, but I'm it takes you on a ride to get there. Oh, absolutely. Um, Henry and Ruthie, you're both way more important than I am. So I'm guessing you've seen the whole season. What do we have to look forward to for the remaining six when they come out December 14th? 
I think for fans of The Crown, which I have been since the very beginning, I've always kind of been sympathetic to the royal family, so this show was always for me. But um, I think it's very rewarding how it all is wrapped up. I think that people will be really happy with what they see in the finale. But in terms of narrative, it, it is the aftermath. It's the boys growing up and dealing with the loss of their mother. And as we know from a lot of the first look photos, we see William and Kate meet at St. Andrews University in Scotland. So it's that Will's mania. It's the craze of, I mean, I, that's the part I truly remember of like this storyline is everyone fancying Prince William, <laughs> speculating about who he was going to marry. And yeah, lots of those, again, recognizable moments that we remember from their relationship at the beginning stages. And I don't want to say too much, but it is very emotional. And I definitely cried watching the finale. And that's maybe more about me than anything else. I'm not ready for this show to be out of my life. I loved season one in the 40s and how glamorous the Queen was and how young and the romance with Matt Smith's version of um, Prince Philip. I wish that season had been five seasons long because I enjoyed that so much. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And the the Princess Margaret storylines, just absolutely wonderful. And the cast this season, I mean, I mentioned Imelda Staunton as the Queen. Jonathan Price is just extraordinary as Prince Philip. And Dominic West as as Prince Charles is a very interesting storyline also. Oh, he... I don't think it's a spoiler to say in the aftermath of Princess Diana's death. Dominic West is incredible in those scenes. I, like, give him all the awards. I truly was blown away by how great he is in those initial scenes after they find out Diana's died. Um, the casting in general on the show is incredible. Like the fact that they changed the cast every two seasons, I don't believe that had really been done before in a period drama. Um, so the, it really was this kind of pioneering moment in casting and just like all these stars that have come from the show, like Claire Foy and Emma Karn and Josh, Josh O'Connor, people that are like incredibly talented and were reasonably unknown before. So I look forward to seeing that for like Ed McVeigh, who plays Prince William and Meg Bellamy um, coming up in the second half of season six. The Crown, this first half out today, the remaining six out December 14th. And for the super fans of The Crown, like Ruthie and Henry and myself, there is the official Crown podcast. So you can listen to that as you watch the show, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I also want to talk about another film that is out tomorrow that I think a lot of people will be talking about. The film is called Rustin, and it's about Bayard Rustin, who was an advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. And I have to say, I am embarrassed that I didn't know who he was, and I didn't know of his incredible importance and just the extraordinary contributions that he made to the civil rights movement. And now with this new film that is directed by the great George C. Wolfe and stars Coleman Domingo as Bayard Rustin, a lot of people are going to learn his story. Henry, how much did you know going into this movie? Jessica, I feel like such a rube. I did not know a thing going into this movie about Rustin, and I feel like I should have. Um, He was an openly gay black man in the early 60s at a time when there were a few openly gay people period. And there was a tension in the movie between people wanting to enlist him to help with his march on Washington because he is so bright and such a great activist, but also being concerned that his quote-unquote sexual deviance will undermine the cause. And it's an incredibly powerful story. Um, We should also mention that the Obamas are producing this film through their Higher Ground production company. And that's no coincidence because Barack Obama gave Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013. Yes, because what a contribution and how important to 
give him that honor. It's also written by Julian Brees and, and Dustin Lance Black, who I know because he wrote Milk, which is another story about, you know, obviously an incredibly important uh, American gay icon, you know, Harvey Milk. And I thought it was really interesting watching this film and watching Henry, like you said, Bayard Rustin, and the way that people knew that he he was brilliant. He had such important ideas about the civil rights movement, and it's devastating to watch people dismiss him and in some ways kind of tiptoe around not wanting to fully call out, we don't want you in the room because you're gay, but they are screaming that silently. Absolutely. And Jessica, there are two more points I want to make about this film. The First of all, it's coming out in the same year as the 60th anniversary of the original March on Washington. And secondly, I just want to go over some of this cast with you. It's insane on the talent that's involved with Chris Rock and CCH Pounder and Jeffrey Wright and Audra McDonald. It's a masterclass in acting. Oh, absolutely. I loved seeing Divine Joy Randolph as Mahalia Jackson singing because I was like, wow, absolutely like bring the house down even though it's a sky above you it makes me want to go back and listen to mahalia jackson music um it's been a while and she is so ridiculously talented just to go back to the casting i want to talk about coleman domingo a little bit because he delivers this performance i mean this is his first lead role in a feature film he has been acting for so many years and he has collaborated with george c wolf before this performance though to me felt so different. He's in almost every scene of the film and he completely disappears into this character in a way that I found very moving. I completely agree. And so different from his role, say, on Euphoria and some of the other things that he's done in the past. It was great to see his range and great to see him occupy this role. And to be perfectly honest, I can't imagine anyone else playing it. Yes, I love that you mentioned Euphoria. Super different, um, you know, (laughs) but also I think about Zola and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And there are so many things that he's done. And he's obviously a very versatile actor. But to me, this performance was unlike anything that he has done before. I hope once the awards conversations start kicking off that his name is very much a part of it. I gotta think it's going to be. And kudos to the writers and directors and producers of this film for putting a gay black man in the lead role um, to play a gay black man. I thought that was really important and um, significant. Yes. It's such an important reminder of how some people's stories are not told in the history books. And to me, I mean, the fact that Bayer Rustin isn't part of the educational conversation about the civil rights movement, about American history, is a tragedy. And I I think it's important and just very moving that his name will be known now by people who didn't. Agree completely. And Rustin is out tomorrow, and we hope you'll check it out. Henry, there's also a companion podcast to Rustin that's really going to explore that idea of why we don't know more about Bayard Rustin. Henry, there's plenty of news up on Tudum.com. One project that is very intriguing to me is called Hannibal, and Denzel Washington will not be playing Hannibal Lecter. Rather, he will be playing the Carthaginian general who famously led an army of warriors and elephants across the Alps to fight the Roman Republic during the Second Punic War, a war I had not heard of. 
Jessica, I feel like if it were Hannibal Lecter, he would have eaten the elephants and maybe some of the soldiers too. 100%. I love that this is going to be a reteaming also of Denzel Washington and Antoine Fuqua uh, because the two of them clearly love working together. So this is several films that they've done together now. Yeah, it's also written by the three-time Oscar nominee John Logan, who's done Gladiator, The Aviator, and Hugo. No release date yet, so we cannot tell you to mark your calendars, but very much looking forward to that. Also, Queer Eye is going to be back for two more seasons. Season 8 is going to be set once again in New Orleans. That's out January 24th next year. And Henry, what do we know about Season 9? So Season 9 is going to happen. It is going to be encountering a whole new group of heroes in Las Vegas, a town that's not necessarily known for its Let's call it taste and subtlety, perhaps. And um, Bobby Burke is going to be leaving the Fab Five after season eight. He will have performed his last interior design makeover. And so we will see what happens and who they add to the group for season nine. They're doing God's work in Vegas and elsewhere. Season eight out January 24th, set in New Orleans. And then we'll get season nine in Vegas after that. So there is a new film called Damsel that stars Millie Bobby Brown, friend of Netflix. Obviously, she plays Eleven on Stranger Things. And this film is really interesting to me. Henry, tell us about the movie Damsel. Damsel stars Millie Bobby Brown as Elodie. And um, it flips the script of a fairy tale. Um, She marries a quote-unquote Prince Charming, only to find out she's been sold a bill of goods and that he's a fraud. And that Prince Charming sacrifices her to a dragon. And she's got to stay alive while fighting a dragon. Poor Millie Bobby Brown. This does not sound like a good situation for her to be in. No, you think Eleven has some difficult situations in Stranger Things, like I think Elodie's in for it. It also stars Angela Bassett, Robin Wright, and Nick Robinson. So the cast is really stocked here, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait for that as well. There are a bunch of other things out this week that you will want to take note of. Scott Pilgrim takes off the anime series. We'll also have out Stamped from the Beginning, which is a documentary based on Ibram X. Kendi's bestseller of the same title. Peter Dinklage is going to narrate a series called How to Become a Mob Boss and Downton Abbey. That's going to do it for us this week. Again, the first half of season six of The Crown is out today. Rustin is out tomorrow. And for both of those, There are two companion podcasts coming out this week. Today is the launch of the official Crown podcast about this latest season. And host Edith Bowman is going to go episode by episode exploring what's fact, what's fiction in the series, and talking with all of the major contributors. Tomorrow, you can hear the first two episodes of the Rustin Companion podcast. It's hosted by Travel Anderson, and it includes interviews with George C. Wolfe, Coleman Domingo, and activist and scholar Joyce Ladner. You can find both of those everywhere you get your podcasts. Next week, Henry and I will be talking about Squid Game, The Challenge. Henry, are we both going to live through this? We are, Jessica. And I got to tell you, it's just fantastic. I have a lot of thoughts to share about it. We'll see you next week. 